do we know when demons' activity is present and spiritual warfare is necessary in contrast to the problem uh, being due to the flesh, chemical imbalance, brain damage, and so forth? Other than prayer and asking God for discernment, are, we, are there any consistent guidelines to use? Would you like me to give you this question? <laughs> we'll go sit out while you answer that. <laughs> well, of course, uh, the question is rather large and inclusive. If you're speaking about yourself, I think um, the way I would approach it would be to, first of all, be careful to apply the victory that the Word has given us over the flesh and our old nature. There are areas in which there's a great similarity uh, between the activity of darkness and the flesh, especially if one has given into the flesh over a period of time and uh, perhaps an unclean spirit has been assigned to try to dictate and control and rule in that area of your life. So I would begin by carefully uh, fighting against whatever the uh, problem is, if it's clearly in the area of the flesh. And then I would uh, be uh, mindful that it, as I did that, if the problem was uh, increasing and intensifying especially, then of course I would suspicion that there is a wicked spirit that needs to be resisted and commanded to leave upon the authority we have with Christ. However, I think there are areas where it's quite clearly uh, probably demonic. And that's when um, there are things like Dr. Murphy was dealing with where your own uh, self-worth is being severely assaulted, where you're being told that you're no good, that you're worthless, uh, or uh, temptations to curse God, uh, to say things like, uh, I love the devil. It's amazing how many people have problems of that nature. <clears throat> or uh, murder, uh, thoughts of suicide. Many, many times those have demonic origin and ought to be resisted as such. Simple little prayer like, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his blood, I come against the wicked power of, and then name the symptom. And I command you and your old host to leave me and go where the Lord Jesus Christ sends you. That's the resistance side. Then on the positive side, you invite the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Jesus Christ to be in full control of your whole being. Thank you. Ed Murphy, can people be delivered from A, from afar without their knowledge, B, when they are only partly open to the possibility? Didn't Jesus do this? Well, that's a good question. I, I could pass that on to Mark Bubeck because I know that's an area that he has been, he's been concerned about. You know, you can't make any blanket statement that covers everything, but basically you can make the statement that an individual against their own will will not be delivered. An individual against their own will, you may, if you're in a realm of, of authority, be able to hinder the activity 
of the demonic powers in that life, for instance, a wife in reference to her husband, because that involves you and that involves your children. But to be able to uh, carte blanche say that you can take an authority over a person, over a demon, against their own will, reminds me of what Jim was saying to us today, that you really can't control anyone. And that ultimately individuals have to make a response. Now there is a dimension of, uh, of warfare praying that has to do with family members that I think needs to be explored in, in one of the, in the, one of the appendix, appendixes in my spiritual warfare manual. I have a, an interesting article which is really misnamed. It's called How I Learned to Pray for the Lost. It was sent out by somebody from back to the Bible, but it really should be renamed the authority of the believer. And it's a testimony, I think, a woman writing it of her uh, practicing of spiritual warfare, resistance, offensive praying on behalf of family members who are not walking with God. And, uh, and she testifies the tremendous changes that over a process of time, period of time, began to take place in the person's life. And I think that, again, is your sphere of, of ministry, your sphere of covering. And I think that's a whole new dimension that needs to be explored, if you want to use the word explored, entered into more. For instance, I have four children, and one of my older son is a, is a Christian, a wonderful young man, but he's not walking with God. And, uh, and I, when I pray, I, I reach out in my covering. Did I say this here? I've been talking so much these days, I already did, probably. And, and bring them under my, under my, my covering. And I declare this spirit world, he belongs to me, and his children belong to me, and his wife does also. And you're dealing with me now, not just with him. And I have confidence in it as, as I begin to do that. I think that you can do, and that we need to do more and more. And even as you get a group of intercessors focusing prayer on individuals, then you can see some changes take place. But basically, in the end, those people have to make decisions themselves, and they will make those decisions. You can't make them for them. But there is that combination. Okay, Did, didn't Jesus do this? Well, Jesus did a lot of things that I haven't been able to do, and uh, and I don't I don't mean that sarcastically. I recognize what you mean. Uh, you know, you, when you come to the gospel stories, however, you have to remember you have a third uh, a ten second condensed version of what might have lasted for an hour. Remember, the gospel writers summed up, especially in the biographical books in the Book of Acts, summed up expressions. You don't know how long the the, the message that Mark gave last night is, I mentioned the other day that Mark 9, the Gerardine demonic, and Mark, excuse me, Mark 5, and Mark 9, the little boy at the Mount of Transfiguration, are the two most severe cases of demonization in Scripture. And we're given uh, some detail on that, but Mark mentioned some things last night. He said that he supposed happened, and he is right, and I think you could do a lot more supposes to what happened. That might have gone on for an hour. You read it in, in, in 30 seconds. And so when Jesus, like for instance, dealt with the Matthew 15 with the, the Syrophoenician woman's child, if that woman lived on the Phoenician coast, then the child wasn't even there. The child w was set free, though Jesus had no contact whatsoever with that, uh, that child. He responded to the faith of the woman. So, you know, there are things that Jesus did that I don't do, and I don't care who the healer is or who the people are, and... Uh, None of us operate in that power, that dimension, not even the apostles did. And so, just because Jesus did it, that means it can be done, and if God gives me faith for it, all right. 
You don't just take a passage of Scripture and flippantly apply it to any situation. God has to speak to you and give you conviction that this is what he wants you to do. You better be sure it's of God. Then you move on. Thank you. I think we needed that. Dr. Wilder, is the lay deliverance counselor who begins to recognize an MPD because of extreme abuse capable to deal with the case, or should the deliverance counselor refer the person to a professional such as yourself? Well, the uh, answer to that would be is a, a lay counselor is not able to deal with it, and a professional is not able to deal with it. And the uh, both together probably still aren't able to deal with it. But in terms of referral, I really think, yes, we need all of those people plus the ministry of the body on top of it. I would be, as a, uh, a professional counselor, very unhappy if I didn't have some people working with me for deliverance uh, in any case like that. And I would be... Uh, I would imagine that any lay counselor would be in a very difficult situation if they were trying to handle anything this complex and long-lasting by themselves either. So I would say definitely get, get some kind of a referral. The problem you will find is very hard to find anybody that knows anything about it that's very helpful. So, again, I go back to we need the body of Christ with its multiplicity of gifts to fill in where there is uh, there is a lack. And I, so I call on, on everybody to be a part of that. Which is another reason why, if you're in this in this area, to sign on the, the list out there for support for uh, working in this area of multiple personalities for counselors, for support groups. Yes. Also, just to say that counselors, we're not talking here about people who are licensed at, at this point. If you are counseling or helping somebody, that makes you a counselor in this one, so please sign up. Jan, can I ask you a question? Yes. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do this, but uh, I was thinking as, as, uh, as Jim was talking today in that presentation, which uh, every time he gives a paper and everything he writes on, I try to get a hold of because this is a new dimension of reality to all of us and even in the world of psychiatry. Uh, I'd just like to ask him a question two questions maybe together, and I'm sure that's in the mind of many of you. One is that my understanding is, Jim, is that in the area, even the world of psychiatry, that psychologists and psychiatrists were resistant to the multiple personality dimension and diagnosing most people as schizophrenic up until uh, really the, the concept gained validity or acceptance through the woman psychiatrist who wrote the book Sybil. Is that correct? That's correct, except that it's still still somewhat controversial there. Okay. It's gained, the last two years have been the greatest change, but uh, up until that point it was considered that there was maybe one or two cases in existence in the, in the world or perhaps in history. Uh, that is, the middle part of this decade, in psych a, a century in psychiatry considered that. Last, uh, last century it was much more common, then it sort of disappeared and now being discovered again. Well, there, that was an uh, introductory question to this question. Okay. And, <laughs> and that is, uh, you read Sybil and you read secular books on this because except for what Jim and, uh, and his partner, James uh, Friesen, are producing, there's not a lot in this particular area. So I read a lot in this from secular psychiatrists and uh, 
even the case of civil. Uh, and then, Jim, the question is, are unsaved people, psychiatrists and counselors, able to bring about this type of a fusion of personalities as you were talking about? I don't know how they handle whatever demonic dimension might be there, but, I mean, are they capable of doing it? And do you believe there's validity in what they're doing, even though, not even from the spiritual perspective, that actually the phenomenon itself, that there is uh, a dimension of cure that can be brought about through Skillful counseling on the part of psychiatrists, maybe who are not even believers. Yes, that's the that's the case, particularly in the in the case of dealing with multiple personality and with those that have been um, uh, demonized. Most of the people who are open enough to this will allow the person to um, draw on the. Uh, resources from God and, and most of the, even the secular uh, sources have reports of um, deliverance and exorcism as part of the process that they put in the category and uh, something really weird happened then one day and you know we encountered something and uh, we had to uh, you know remove this evil force so there's there's sort of an openness there I do believe that there's a lot that does help um, there's a limitation, of course, yeah. any time you, you move into that area. But a good secular uh, therapist who's open to this can provide a lot of help. Thank good. You. Thank you. Dr. White, <clears throat> we have been led to pray against certain principalities in our city. Do you have any counsel concerning prayer in this realm? For instance, the spirit of greed. Uh, we have been moved by the Lord to uh, ensure that we don't give this spirit a foothold ourselves mm -hmm. in ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's a relevant, uh, cutting-edge question, and uh, I will be addressing it and uh, in, in part of my closing remarks later this afternoon. Uh, some some perspectives on what I believe to be the right approach to dealing with higher-level strategic um, kind of. Uh, warfare prayer. I, I raised the question yesterday, how far can we take the authority that we have in dealing with the strong man? Obviously we deal with strong men that are involved in individual lives. Can we take that uh, to the level of uh, institutions, uh, cities, regions, countries? And um, there's a lot being written, a lot being discussed on this. And I brought a paper, it's there if you want to get the full benefit, uh, in a sense the, the full round answer. Uh, the paper is out there. You, you can go to the table. Probably what I'd rather do is just reserve uh, my remarks for the closing session so we can all kind of track that same direction. But a, a brief warning. Uh, do not do this kind of thing uh, unless you really are clearly moving with God and moving within the parameters of Scripture. There's a lot going on in this dimension that I would consider dangerous. You do not take your little pop gun and and run out and start poking holes in hell. I don't recommend it. Uh, you're dealing with a dimension of power that goes far beyond anything you can ever imagine. And uh, so unless you are clearly, in a sense, picked up and, uh, and led by, by the Spirit to be involved in this kind of uh, strategic warfare prayer, don't eagerly jump into it. And uh, there are some uh, that have a strong conviction that we shouldn't even be doing that kind of thing. And I think on some level there's an appropriate way uh, to do that kind of strategic prayer. And that's what the meeting in Pasadena Monday is going to focus on. What's the right way to go about this? 
so it's still a bit in process, and if you want the benefit of my full response, uh, quite a lengthy paper, uh, it's out there on the table. Thank you. Jan, can I ask another question? <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I don't mean to pop in here, but I, I have to leave, and I can't hear Tom's presentation because I have to be in San Diego this evening, and so but we're going to be together Monday. But I was in Arizona just a week or so ago, and I just let me give you an illustration of just what Tom was saying. And I thought I was going to give it in my paper, but Jan didn't give me enough time to finish last night, as you know. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we were, I was talking with a group of about 120 uh, pastors on spiritual warfare, new to most of them. And, uh, and several of them came up and talked to me afterwards. The man lead, leading this session for Tom's benefit is a young man who's called out of the out of engineering to get himself full-time to bringing pastors and churches together, basically in the area of, of revival, prayer, and spiritual warfare. Wonderful young man. So I, I touched on this in my presentation to the pastors, and he told me a story, so this is secondhand. He said that uh, in, in Phoenix a, uh, a few weeks ago, there was a man of God who really moves in the spirit, one of those men whom God communicates with. And so as he was... Uh, as he was praying, asking God, why is Phoenix such a hard city to penetrate with the gospel? It's like this area. It has a few great big churches, so everybody thinks it's evangelized, but the percentage of people who go to church is very little limited there. And so God, as he was dri driving, gave him a, a vision, and he's not a guy I understand prone to visions, of this incredible, ugly superpower in the spiritual world hovering over the city hall over this particular city. It was a revelation of what you and I would call a territorial spirit, you know. And so he got so upset, he was going along his car, and he began to come against that thing and hit that thing and to, and to rebuke it. And he said, all of a sudden, this power came upon him and just about knocked him while he's driving the car out of the sea. And he had to pull the car over the side of the road and stop. And he had to recover. It was a physical attack against him. When it was all over, he said, the Lord said one word to him. I showed you the power over the city. I did not command you to attack it alone. That is the work of the body of Christ. Amen. And I said, praise God. Amen. That's the body, exactly what Jim is talking about. And that's what we were trying to say. You, we're not a bunch of lone rangers around this area. We're, we can get hurt. But the body together, I think, begins to move in this mm -hmm. area. Hallelujah. Yeah, just one further quick uh, illustration. In Taiwan last May, uh, we moved in this direction and approached to, to try to deal with the principality over Taiwan. And I don't know if you know much about the country, but it's one of the more idolatrous nations on earth. And so for the, for the first few days, we went in and out of some of the heavier temples, and uh, there were a group of five or, or six of us. And uh, I, I have to tell you, I've uh, learned some of this through some hard, painful experience. Right. A couple of days after doing that kind of prayer at different places and, and locations throughout Taiwan, uh, it, it literally felt like a brick dropped out of the sky and hit me in the head. I was knocked silly for a couple or three days and had to literally cling, uh, cling hold of the Lord and uh, remain steady through that time and needed other brothers and sisters there to pray with me, pray for me. And so I underscore this. I say it strongly. I say it straight. Don't don't jump out there in an eager fashion and start uh, tackling uh, the principality over San Francisco or over San Jose. Uh, we need, I believe, to wait in the presence of God and hear clearly from Him. And when it is appropriate timing to move, it will be so clear, so evident, 
The Lord, I believe, will just reach down and clearly pick us up and give us a clear word that now is the time to pray corporately, strategically. And apart from that, I don't move this direction strongly. So I'm waiting and watching probably as many as you are as well. As I read the Bible, I, I can only think of one instance where God kept diminishing the forces to go out in battle, and that was with Gideon. But God always sent out his, uh, his people, and uh, he fought the battle. But, uh, you know, we, we need to stand firm together. All right, uh, Mark, since so many of the uh, times that Jesus healed people of physical illness... He did so by casting out demons. To what extent can we say that physical illness and uh, is demonic affliction? And how can I know what is the source of illness and how to deal with it? That's <laughs> a, you get the good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get you too often. <laughs> well, it's obvious, first of all, that not all physical illness is... Uh, um, directly related to demonic activity in a person's life. But some of it is. I think once again that uh, in our intercession we ought to be mindful of our authority to resist any powers of darkness that might be involved in whatever physical illness we might feel. I personally believe that God has given us a good sense to use what medical wisdom we might be able to receive from good doctors and uh, find that certainly within the realm of God's provision for our good. But at the same time, I think we'd be very remiss if we didn't uh, intercede and pray for our family and loved ones who might be under some sort of physical illness against any powers of darkness that might have anything to do with afflicting that person. It's not so much uh, that we uh, feel there's, de there's a demon behind every illness, but we certainly have the authority to resist any intrusion. And many times it's very much in order anyway because Satan loves to hit people when they're weak and down and uh, come and strike at them uh, when they're sick and, or when they're in a difficult time in their life. It's always in order to be interceding. I think of a girl that was a pastor's daughter. When I first heard about her, she was in a mental hospital in Illinois and her Parents called me desperate because she was so bent on committing suicide that they had to watch her constantly, and even then she would invent ingenious ways of trying to take her life. And uh, we had intercession for her one day on a Tuesday, every hour on the hour, I, I believe it was now, we just prayed a little warfare prayer. There were about seven or eight of us, her parents and some other Christian friends in the church, and my wife and I, uh, We, because I couldn't even go see her in the hospital without the doctor's permission and certainly knew I wasn't going to be able to do any warfare work in that situation. And so we just prayed that way. 
Every hour on the hour, just a little warfare prayer, simple, short. She was so relieved by Friday that her that uh, the hospital released her to her parents. Um, and the suicide drive was definitely demonic. Now, that wasn't all of her problem. She did have a physical problem, a genetic-related problem of inadequate blood supply to her brain. So she never really uh, was free of uh, general decline in her mental health and uh, powers of her mind. But you see, the demons had moved in on that, and in her weakness, they were able to convince her she ought to kill herself. And when I worked with her, we got a hold of a demon whose name was Suicide. And once he was sent away to the pit, uh, uh, she never had any more problems with that uh, suicide drive. Praise God. Ed, one, do we know what part God's angels play in the deliverance ministry? And two, do we have the authority to loose the angels for specific tasks uh, we might desire uh, performed? Well, I would ask the, answer the first question by saying all I know is that angels are operative in deliverance ministries. And uh, the part they have that I have found is, is, is primarily been protective. That is the part that I've known where I've been protected and the people with me, and even the victim has been protected. And uh, also, and well, let me, let me talk about that. Uh, let me mention the, just mention the fact that uh, <clears throat> I think that my experience, and I'm sure my brethren would say the same thing, though we've never talked about this, in the demonic realm has reawakened or quickened my understanding of the angelic realm. Maybe it should be the other way around, but I'm too dull, like most evangelicals in our theology, what we don't see, what we don't know up there, we do, well, it's there okay. But I, I count on the presence of God's angels in my personal life for protection and in my deliverance ministry, especially in severe demonization, in a, just as much as I count on my wife praying with me or I count on others praying with me. And uh, in fact, when I get into a serious case of, of demonic activity, where, I, where, where you've got violent manifestation, I usually say, Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus that you will fill this room with your angels who I know are here, that you build that wall of protection around us that you promised in your word, and that you will, your angels will keep any violence from taking place that would hurt any of us and hurt the victim. And uh, since I've learned to do that, even in the most violent, violent type of manifestation, similar to Mark 5, as we heard last night, I've never been hurt or had anybody with me hurt or the victim been, been seriously hurt. So that's the first dimension of it. And, uh, of course, I don't pray to the angels. I ask God to do that. Another dimension that I've done, just occasionally, and it's not uh, something I do all the time because when you get into every session, you don't know what you're going to do. You know, you just go into the session and God leads. Is that There have been times when I've dealt with extremely stubborn demons, and I've just said, Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus that your angels will come and take this filthy, rotten scum who's defying your name when he defies my authority and hang him over the lake of fire and let him burn for a while, and then when he's ready, bring him back here. And it happens. Now, if the angels take him or the Spirit of God takes him, I don't know how they get there, but all of a sudden they get there, and I've had him scream and yell, it's burning, I can't stand this, I'll come back, I'll do anything you say. 
complete. And I'll say, okay, now. So often when I get the tough cases, I'll say, I'm going to lay it out to you. I've got 15 minutes. You're going to make it easy or you're going to make it tough. You make the decision. You do what I say and we'll get this over with quickly. If not, you're going to be tormented and you're going to suffer. And there are two, two ways I can do that. To ask God that by the angels to take them to the lake of fire. The other one is, is make them go into the presence of Christ where they see him. You talk about burning him and frightening him. And it cuts down the deliverance process. Now, there are angels manifested in that. I don't see anything. I don't have to see anything. I just sit there and say, hallelujah, God is working. What was the second part of the question? Uh, <laughs> oh, Do we have authority to loose the angels for specific tasks we might desire performed? I, I don't know that we have authority to loose, loose angels to do anything. But we I think do it also have, depends on what we want performed. Yeah, we do have the, 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 the prayer to God. God, I pray that your angelic beings who are ministering spirits send forth and minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Hebrews 1.14 and then Psalm 139 was uh, 5 and 6 and a couple other ones like that are the passages I quote of. Those are the ones I quote, and so I don't re release angels at all. I don't think you have any biblical basis for any man sending an angel. Angels are sent by God, but you can ask God to do what he has promised to do. That's right. Okay, thank you. Dr. Wilder, is it possible for someone to have approximately 13 or 14 characteristics listed for MPD without actually having MPD? Sounds like a disease, without actually being MPD. Sure. Okay. Oh, that's encouraging. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate uh, on that? Yeah. <laughs> for, for one thing, dissociation as an emotional defense doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to end up with multiple personalities. That's fragmentation to a certain, de certain extent. And lots of people have the characteristics involved there. Uh, and uh, it's simply because they use dissociation as a defense, but not as strongly as, uh, you know, not to the extent where they would be uh, uh, divided up. I presume somebody there is asking the question might be worried about uh, whether they've got another one of those things. And uh, at this point, uh, checkoff lists don't mean that you have something or don't have something. It's just a way of letting you know that these are things that would be present if there was none. There's a couple of things on the list uh, that would be really strong indicators, but you know, if you're really worried about it, ask somebody who knows. I mean, personally. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Tom White, last night you stated that uh, you're not always uh, united with people to pray. Uh, how do you know when you are united for prayer? Let me clarify first uh, when I said that I still uh, embrace prayer with the body of Christ. And I was not saying in that that I in, in some way separate myself from prayer meetings or prayer groups. Um, but when it gets into concerted <clears throat> strategic uh, prayer that really has focus and has purpose. It's in that kind of a climate and context where the chemistry needs to be right. You, you need to know what you're there to do. And instead of uh, praying for the fourth time for Antilles hangnail or um, perhaps peripheral items that uh, would be appropriate to pray about in certain contexts, but you really know when you're coming together that you're there to 
storm the gates of, of heaven to penetrate the gates of hell and to roll them back. It's in that context. How do, how do you know? Um, I think you can only know when you are there and when you sense that you're breaking through and you sense the Holy Spirit is leading you in such a way uh, that you're really touching heaven and that God is beginning to move. There's also a personal chemistry. You really feel like you fit with those others that are, that are praying. You can communicate. There's a flow of information between you. There's a, there's a commonality of uh, your heart purpose. You don't like being with that person or with those, those particular people. Not only on a human level, but uh, there's a, I guess, a spiritual bonding uh, that, that goes on. Uh, one other thought, this, this type of prayer, uh, people will say to me, well, how do I get into it? How do I really learn uh, these deeper levels of prayer? I describe it this way. Years ago, uh, I wanted to find out, and I, I heard of a man in the Northwest who's very much into revival kind of praying, and he was doing a prayer retreat, so I thought, I just want to go and hang out. And as I got there, I quickly found that this was a, a form of prayer that I had not really been exposed to before. And as I look back on it, it's just like I took my little piece of straw and laid it down alongside a raging bonfire. And just showing up and just being there with other individuals who had a deeper vision for prayer and a heart to practice prayer, I didn't have to do anything but just be there in the presence of God moving and breathing out his power. And it caught. Uh, I caught fire. And this is not something that's taught, it's caught. And so if you're really wanting to plug into real revival kind of praying, find out where that's going on and just go and let the Lord guide you and teach you. And you'll know, you'll sense the chemistry when it's right. Mark Bubeck, this is a, this is a simple one. How can we find out about the Counseling Center in Iowa? <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we're very new. And um, hopefully uh, we will begin to have more exposure on a national level. Um, I don't have the address. Yes, I do. The International Center for Biblical Counseling, 1551 Indian Hills Drive, Suite 200. 1551 Indian Hills Drive, Suite 200, Sioux City, Iowa, 51104. Phone number 712-277-4760. Thank you. Ed Murphy, in prayer, can you bind Satan without speaking out loud? Can Satan hear your silent prayers? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, my question, I'm going to answer two parts of it. One is, I, and I'm not trying to be offensive, please, I'm trying to be very kind. Uh, I don't like the expression binding Satan. Uh, I know, I think that we have to recognize that the word Satan, resist the devil, and those expressions in Scripture are summary expressions for resisting the kingdom of evil supernaturalism. Okay? Because Paul clarifies in Ephesians 6.12, 
he lays out the hierarchy. He starts out with, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might that you might stand against the wiles of the devil. Then if you don't mind my paraphrase. Now let me explain to you how the devil works. He works through principalities and powers and so forth and so on. But the, when the Bible says resist the devil, basically you're resisting the activity of Satan, which is coming against you or the situation or people you're involved in. You're not really literally in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil as if he were omnipresent and we're in a million places at the same time. Otherwise, if I'm doing it and he's there with me, then how can Tom do it when he's 5,000 miles away? So that's a summary expression. And, uh, and I'm not trying to be negative about that, but I think it goes partly into some of our area of what Tom was saying a moment ago of the flippant way we approach the spirit world. And we sort of have the idea that we can just take the devil on all by ourselves and tell him where to go. So resist the devil, binding the powers of the of, of darkness is the idea, because every demon is a devil in that he bears the nature of Satan, and he is a smaller expression of the of his master who was Satan. I just wanted to throw that along the way. And uh, you know, when I say Satan in the name of Jesus, I resist you. You know, demons know I'm talking about them, and, and I know I'm talking about them. I'm not talking about as if that. The devil was uh, totally occupied with me. That's just a side point. What was the question again? <laughs> I, I think I think the what they would like to know is that can you in your mind, okay, uh, without saying a word, can you uh, rebuke him, bind him away from you? Okay, I w I'd like to answer this, and I would like my the, the fellows here to help me on this. This is an area that I personally am in struggling with. You know. The question is always asked, can Satan read your mind? And if by that you mean that he's totally aware of what I am thinking when I'm in a deliverance session, that those demons know everything I'm thinking, they can't. Otherwise, they would be constantly tripping me up instead of me tripping them, them up. And so I think in that dimension, my mind is, is sealed off. They don't know what's going on. In fact, they will confess it. They're, they're really stupid, ignorant bunch of garbage anyhow. And they, we give them far more... Uh, you know, honor and credit than what they, what they really are due. Uh, but if my mind moves into their territory, then that just draws them. That's why if I start fantasizing about sexual demon, about sexuality, I can pick up a sexual demon. I've opened my mind to them. Now, you know, who can understand the human personality? It is so complex. And uh, what I have done this in certain deliverance sessions, and this is where I, I, I need help because I'm not sure if I'm correct or not. I've never had it fail on me. And that is I'm dealing with a person. I'm not really sure if there's a demonic power there. I don't want to even expose that possibility to the person. I always say I never tell a person they have a demon unless I make contact with that demon. Even I teach them to do spiritual warfare and changes take place and they come back and say, wow, my life is totally transformed. Was, was I demonized? I always say, why do you even ask that question? Just praise God, you're free. Don't worry about what you were and what you weren't. So that's a very important thing because a lot of people were putting demons into them and they're not demons. And you don't, it's a terrible thing to do, even as Jim said today. And the disruption with multiple personalities when those so-called demons are dealt with makes these personalities withdraw and all kinds of awful things happen. But anyhow, I will I'll pray like this in my mind. In the name of Jesus Christ, I come against every enemy of Jesus Christ and I, the child of God who was attached to this person's life, who is there. This is if I don't know if they're there. You cannot hurt that person. You cannot hurt me. 
and you're under the authority that God has given me in Christ, and you cannot stop this person from responding to me. Now, I do that. And every time I've done that in which there has been demonic powers present, it has worked. I don't have a biblical base for that. I don't know if I'm totally right or, or, or not. So I'm really, that's the only way I can answer that. And I wish the guys would give me some information because I learned from them too about this particular dimension. I don't know if Tom would have anything to help. Even yeah. if I'm wrong, Tom, you correct me because this, I, mm -hmm. I, this is an area I don't have full assurance on. Well, just a quick word maybe to, to round out in answer to the question. I find there are, are certain circumstances where it's not possible, maybe not appropriate, to pray out loud. Yeah. And w what I would call a silent, focused kind of prayer is effective. Okay, and that's if there are what demonic I'm forces present, if they're in a person or if they're in a place, uh, you, you, you can focus in on that, in the power of the Holy Spirit, subdue okay. the operation of those evil spirits. And I found that to be effective. Okay, that's what I'm saying, and that's what I found, too. I don't know what Mark... Well, I, I, I agree with what's been said. I think that uh, uh, some folk uh, conclude that uh, Satan can never read your mind or doesn't know what your mind is thinking. But if he can put thoughts in your mind, which he does, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, um, Peter said to Ananias, so that um, there is that I think much spirit communication is through the uh, through the whatever is involved in the mind and thought process, so that uh, we do have authority to use. Um, I think mind direction against demonic powers yeah. in the instances in which we have just spoken, but it is a limited thing so far as they're being able to know everything your mind thinks, that's that would make them omniscient, and they're certainly not that. So. Okay. I know for myself I, that I do business with God or with my mind and my spirit without opening my mouth, and I couldn't answer whether it is God that then conveys the message to these spirits as to what has to happen. I know that my communion is with God, and I speak to God about these things. And speak to the spirit world. I don't know how it works. I just know that God does respond to those events mm -hmm. and and honors that and Good. moves accordingly. That's helpful. I mean, all right. Thank you, <laughs> uh, Doctor Wilder. What do you say to a child who knows that God hasn't seemingly prevented the injuries, trauma, pain, and confusion? I'm so sorry. Because God hasn't prevented it. And I tell them that that's a great and terrible evil that's been done to them. And that's very much the nature of this world that he came to redeem, to save, and to heal. And that it's such a great tragedy breaks my heart that they have come to discover that so young. Yeah. And uh, then I pray for them. Just love them. I've found it helpful, too, in such cases to just remind them of how much the Lord Jesus loves little children. That's right. And what warning he gave to those who dare to abuse them. Yeah. It's better to mm. tie a rock around your neck and go swimming. That's right. 
Jan, I'd like to make yes. uh, one comment on that. that something that has been helpful to me, you know, in counseling with people, particularly I think with women, you know, we've had cases even of our mission of one or two of our missionary women who have been raped. And in part of our training program for our new missionaries, we enter into that subject. And we don't tell our ladies just because they're children of God that, uh, you know, they're not going to break their leg or some awful isn't going to happen or they're not going to be raped. Though I've been trying to also emphasize the offensive spiritual warfare dimension of protection of the husband protecting his wife and the wife protecting herself and your daughters when you move into their dangerous territory. In fact, it's another whole point that would be we touched on a little bit is this thing of offensive in contrast with defensive spiritual warfare, which so very important. But there's two phrases that I I use, particularly I think it was Jim that mentioned it today when you well he just said it now when you're dealing with children, adult survivors of multiple personality, you know, actually it's a childhood affliction, isn't it, that came in childhood, but we discover it in adulthood. And, and they ask that question. The two phrases I use, we live in a, a fallen universe, F-A-L-L-E-N, and we live in a warring universe. And all the implications of the fact that this universe has fallen in all of mankind, and that there is cosmic earthly spiritual warfare between the two kingdoms going on all the time, means that God, on the basis of his own sovereignty in his creative act, does not interfere. Otherwise, a Christian would never get sick, we'd never have this happen, we'd never have this happen, and never have this happen. There is the phenomena of a fallen universe. Read Romans 8, where Paul says our longing is, is, is for what? That the, the groanings of this creation will, be, will, be, will subside, but it will only take place when the adoption occurs, that is, the redemption of our body, the revealing of the sons of God. That's a great passage of Scripture. So therefore, evil is evil and it runs its course. And God allows it to run its course. He intervenes under certain circumstances, but he does not intervene on all circumstances just because we are believers, because of the horribleness of, of a fallen universe and, and a warring universe. That's the universe we live in. And evil is evil, just like Jim said. It should not happen, but it does happen. Now let's just go on from there. Uh, Tom White, if Satan is the author of all disease, why then can't a person with schizophrenia, even if the cause is chemical imbalance, be totally delivered of both the disease and demonization? You made reference that schizophrenia should be handled differently. Why? Well, to say that Satan is the originator of everything that has fallen, and therefore of all disease, in an indirect sense, that's accurate. And uh, he was the, uh, the person, an angelic being, who introduced sin and rebellion into the universe. So, in a sense, everything that has fallen and corruptible traces back to him. That does not, however, in my mind, make it appropriate to say in a direct way that every, uh, every illness... Every human affliction is uh, directly attributable to, to him. And in the indirect general sense, yes. But the fact of the rebellion of Satan and his angels caused also the curse on creation. And uh, the corruption, I think, of the human seed, the corruption of the genetic pool, 
And uh, so it is that element of fallenness, in my view, that uh, contributes to a lot of the illnesses and diseases that, that we see, that then would not be directly a demon. You can't sit there and in a, in a direct say, in a direct way say that there is a spirit connected with, with cancer, with schizophrenia, um, and a lot of these other kinds of problems. That's not to say you shouldn't check it out, because there may be. And I have worked with some um, of folks that suffer from schizophrenia or manic depression, where there is a spirit that is there present. And it is a, an added affliction that the That's devil right. lays on that poor suffering person. And so you can do some deliverance and get rid of that spirit, but often I find then there is still a condition right. uh, there that needs uh, either medical help or divine healing. And it's appropriate to always pray uh, for someone who's afflicted in any way, at any level. And so I practice that measure of prayer, believing that God surely can intervene and uh, touch. But maybe to answer the question again, I don't directly attribute everything to a demonic spirit, uh, yet it is all always appropriate to pray and uh, ask God to touch and to heal and restore things as they uh, originally were intended to be. I think that is another um, case of uh, the enemy being such a ruthless tyrant. He comes against the weak. And I agree completely with your answer that uh, many times schizophrenia is a, apparently a chemically caused condition, but almost invariably demonic powers will move in and try to intensify it and uh, cause all kinds of related problems. And we can help people greatly in those, just like the girl I mentioned earlier who was driven to suicide. We could stop that, but uh, we could not stop the area that uh, was a genetic uh, problem because of circulation of the brain. Just I don't, that's I'd, also like to, yeah, I'd also like to say just one thing generally about schizophrenia. We're not talking about one thing when we're talking about oh, that. Sure. It's a catch-all kind of category thrown around in, in our society and in medical practice, sort of like headache. And it's caused by all sorts of things. It's really a, a, a name that's stuck onto a variety of symptoms that means somehow your brain isn't working the way it seems to be that it should. And uh, it's more specific than that, of course. But uh, let's not presume that just because we have a word here, we somehow have isolated some kind of reality, uh, because there's an awful lot of things included in that one term. Jan, I'd just uh, like to make a comment. This is an incredible subject, because it's a subject that I think all of us who are in deliverance ministries disturbs us and concerns us and so forth. I don't want to be negative when I say this, because I, I just want to be as positive as I can, but many people who bring this question to me in my individual seminars uh, have been exposed to a book that I'm just going to mention by name, and everything in the book is not wrong. But a lot of things in this book are just excellent. It's the book Pigs in the Parlor, P-A-R-L-O-R, by Hammond. I think he's going to be there next week, isn't he? Uh, yes. We'll have a chance to meet him. And his section, for instance, in that book on the demonization of children is excellent, and I, I have it. But it has caused so much problems, that chapter in schizophrenia, that I know Tom Binney and Tom might be here today, we took it out of our bookstore here because it was just causing problems. 
And if you've read the chapter, if I remember it right, and I don't want to pre misjudge, but I think I'm accurate, it basically implies that there is no such thing as a physiological, mental, chemical, unblamped brain distortion called schizophrenia. It's always demonic. And you remember Mrs. Hammond had a vision, and there were the, the hand, and there were the five controlling demons and the sub-demons that were working with her. Now, as I read that, I thought, you know, that might have been true for that woman. The Lord evidently revealed that to her. If it was of God, fine. So she's applied it to everybody. And a lot of people have gotten that book, and they're just... They're causing terrible damage to people. I did it myself. And there's one wonderful Christian girl that over a 10-year period I tried to minister to. You know, and I cast demons out of her from morning to night, and she went to John Lawrence at Multnomah School of the Bible. He did the same thing, and she went every place else. He did the same thing. And there were, there were tons of demons just going out. She didn't get better one iota until they put her on medications. And the family faced the fact that this was a brain dysfunction that had that was at least stabilized, and it went under the the name of schizophrenia. And that lady now has it's been ten years since six or seven years since I've ministered to her. Jan knows who I'm talking about. Is much better. She has her ups and downs. But I was the same way. I thought it was just demons, and that's all we did was demons and inner healing and everything else. But she had to have those medications, just like if she had a kidney disease or something like that. And when we get into the area of the brain or the mind, we get very spiritual. We get real plain down the good old Western materialist when it comes to having an operation or something like that. So I just want to warn you against what all of us write in our books. We have to be very careful what we write when we're outside of the area of our expertise. We have to caution what we say. That's right. Caution what we say because we're dealing with hurt people and we don't want to further their hurt. So it's like a psychological virus. A lot of things go under that name. Yeah. All right, this is for anyone. Can you pray for deliverance of demons for unsaved loved ones? And what if the person does not want to be uh, to release the attachment, for instance, reading pornography? Well, I'll, I'll just give in. a short response first. Um, I think Ed said it earlier, it is inappropriate to pray directly deliverance prayer for someone who is not ready and ripe for that kind of prayer. Um, God's concern in his perspective is for the spiritual condition, the heart of the person. And uh, so if, if someone is not ready to embrace truth and come into relationship with God, no, you don't begin active deliverance prayer. It's like taking a stick and poking it in a hornet's nest. And, uh, and indeed, if you do that, it'll make the condition of the person worse, I believe, unless they're really ready to respond. Now, the way I pray or instruct people to pray is that if you want somebody to be freed from demonic power, if it's someone in your family, if it's, if it's a friend, you have the authority, I believe, based on God's word, to claim that person for salvation. Or God is not willing for any to perish. And I think we can stand on that. And you have the authority to silence the voice of the enemy, any evil spirits, and to subdue that power and get this picture in mind, to separate the influence of the enemy away from that person. And Satan is uh, the god of the world who blinds the minds of those who are unbelieving, so they cannot see the face of Jesus Christ. So it is our role as ambassadors to move with authority to silence and subdue the power and separate that influence away from the person. Then you say, Holy Spirit, speak to them. 
Bring them truth. Bring them someone who can witness to them so that then they can be free to respond. So that's the appropriate way to pray. Then when they respond, when they, when they are beginning to move in that posture of opening their life to the Lord Jesus, then you can confront the evil spirits and they'll go. Uh, but uh, be, before that time, no, you don't, uh, you don't move strongly in that direction. You, you work with a heart and you pray silently and in a focused way in the way I'm describing. That's how I would view it. That's well stated. I think uh, I tried to touch on that in my message this morning, that when you uh, bind the enemy uh, working in uh, trying to keep somebody from coming to Christ, you have great authority to do that. Uh, but that person has to make his decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you can... Um, command those forces of darkness. And I think uh, we really sometimes are remiss in not helping people to understand that when they're first saved, that um, one of the first things they should do is renounce any demonic claim uh, against them on the basis of their own personal sins and and just claim the freedom of, of uh, their new position in Christ to set them free from all demonic rule and be very aggressive in that. But our responsibility, I think, is to help them come to Christ, to receive Christ, and we can do a great deal in fighting against the forces of darkness that are assigned to cause that blindness and spiritual deafness upon them. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Jim Wilder, in an MPD person... Is it is each personality independently open to demonization? Can there be both Christian and anti-Christian or non-believing personalities in one person? If so, is it necessary to lead each personality to Christ before casting out any demonic entity from that personality? <laughs> yeah, you started this, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a lot of questions all at once. I'm not sure if I'm going to get them right, but let would me you, try. Would you like me to give you the? Um, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> okay, is each uh, personality independently open to demonization? My impression is yes. Many different personalities are found to be separately demonized by separate uh, spirit beings that are attached to that particular one's uh, trauma. Now, was it everyone's open to demonization? I would probably say, in another sense, no, because some of us have learned how to protect ourselves from demonic attachments, and so it's quite possible that some of the personalities will have been, will have learned how to live uh, in accordance with uh, God's precepts in a way that keeps them individually free from demonic attachment, while another personality in the same body might be an active Satanist. And uh, I would say this much, that the uh, active Satanists' days as an active Satanist are generally pretty, pretty short under those conditions, and uh, God's good news gets there uh, rather quickly. And I praise God for that. So that answers the second question as to whether um, different personalities can uh, 
have be Christian and anti-Christian. That is that is definitely the case, and I've encountered as as many as three different uh, uh, major different religious persuasions and lots of denominational differences and other things within one person. Uh, so there's there's lots of diversity possible. It really brings a whole new sense, though, when God begins to work with one of these personalities to the expression, you shall be saved and your house. And that's the promise I stand with. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one last question, which is, do you have to have each work with all of the personalities to become Christian before deliverance? Not necessarily, uh, but uh, definitely helps if the if you have one or more that is a strong Christian and is able to help you and at least work with their own and help out with other ones. Um, but I wouldn't say no. There's no fixed formula that everybody in the house has to be a Christian before you can do something. All right, um, Tom White. How do you properly and biblically test a spiritual gift to ensure it is of the Holy Spirit and not a counterfeit? Very good question. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the only way really to test that is by watching the result and watching the fruit. Uh, and hopefully a person will be functioning within the context of a body of believers. And over the course of time, you can watch and see if a gift of prophecy indeed is a word from the Lord, uh, or if a word of knowledge indeed is from God, and if something results uh, from from that. You can observe a person over the course of time and see if they really do have a, a broken, uh, humble, contrite spirit, um, or whether indeed they are um, caught in power or control or manipulation. Now that's ideal. Often the ideal does not present itself. And uh, you're encountering people that are manifesting certain kinds of gifts. And um, often what I will do is two things. One is just go on discernment as God has taught me uh, how to read whether something is of him, whether it's something of the devil, or something of the human spirit. And there can be manifestation of the human corruptive spirit. And I'm talking about deceit and pride and power and manipulation, problem people and churches that seem to have their own agenda. Um, and so often you need to go based on your own discernment and your own judgment. Uh, and I go to 1 Corinthians 2 here, that the spiritual man who's truly in tune with the Holy Spirit will be able to discern rightly and reach a judgment uh, and have the mind of Christ. And there may come that point where you just need to, within yourself, based on what you know of Jesus Christ, say, whatever is in me is not compatible with what is in thee. And something is off here. And uh, you might need to make that judgment and might need to speak quite firmly or act quite uh, straightforwardly to deal with a counterfeit kind of expression. So that's one. And the second thing I do, whenever possible, I will test the gifts. And uh, it's appropriate to test prophecy. I test the tongues. There are uh, multitudes of counterfeit tongues, many demons that will speak in tongues. Uh, and I also will say here, I believe there is a valid expression of the Holy Spirit uh, through the gift of tongues. But we must be careful to test where that comes from. So in a 
in an eye, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart encounter, asking the Holy Spirit to give uh, clarity, uh, I think those kinds of uh, gifts can be tested and should be tested, especially in this day as Satan tries to infiltrate and invade the body of Christ with counterfeit expressions and gifts. The, the gifts of discernment and of wisdom and of knowledge must be functional within the body so we can really receive everything God wants to give us yet protect ourselves and guard ourselves against the counterfeit. And this is difficult territory, but I believe the Lord will be faithful to raise up those those gifts of discernment. All right, Dr. Bubeck. Um, what tips can you share to help identify the gift of discernment in the body of Christ? Would you repeat that? What gifts? What tips? Can you share to help identify the gifts of discernment in the body of Christ? Well, I think um, all of us ought to ask the Lord for discernment. Um, And very, very strongly um, saturate yourself with Scripture itself. I think the more we fill our minds and lives with um, good, sound doctrine, um, there's a natural result of that, spiritual result, that is gives you a discernment uh, of certain things and certain attitudes, and and uh, you just begin to to know that certain way things are uh, being carried out just is not the way the Spirit of God works. So I think filling yourself with Scripture, um, memorizing it, meditating upon it, seeking to understand uh, doctrinal truth is one of the best helps for discernment. Now, if you're speaking about some who may uh, have a special uh, gift from the Holy Spirit, of discernment. That is something a little different. And I think of a dear brother of mine who's, uh, in fact, he's from Australia and his wife and he are coming for our conference. Uh, She has an unusual gift that way. And uh, the only thing I know, it's something special from the Holy Spirit that uh, as they work in spiritual warfare, uh, the Holy Spirit just in a remarkable way, seems to give her insight into uh, what's behind the uh, confrontation, who's behind it. And she'll even come out sometimes with the name before the person gives the name. And the person will say, how'd you know that's what was coming to my mind? She just has an unusual gift from the Holy Spirit. And uh, we just have to allow the Holy Spirit to do that in certain people's lives. But even then, she's very careful uh, to be sure that uh, uh, she's asking the Lord Jesus to not allow her to be deceived in any way and and seeking to understand from the biblical, her biblical perspective, that sort of thing. Thank you. Dr. Murphy. Is it necessary to physically restrain an individual who is having violent manifestations? Well, 
the, the goal towards which you work is <clears throat> to not to have to restrain the person. I mean, that's the first thing I work on when I've got, you know, those, those few serious cases. Now, a lot of the manifestations you can bring under control with the word of command right away. But a lot of people who are working in deliverance sort of feel unless they get some violent manifestations and all this stuff, they don't have any war stories to tell. You know, or uh, that they're really not casting out demons, and that's just nonsense. You know, uh, I don't want that type of stuff. I want as much communication with the individual as possible, and I want the demons to know that they're not in charge. They have no authority here. That Christ reigns, but he reigns through us who are his children. And I've had uh, three or four cases of those extremely violent ones. Usually they're Demonic powers have come down in the occult realm through a family line for hundreds of years. Usually the person has been involved in, in atrocious sin or really heavy, heavy type of demonic activity. And you've got violent demons from the very beginning. And uh, so, you know, if a person's going to jump at me in my, and there's a, a guy there with me and grabs a hold of that person, I'm grateful for that. Tom can tell you some interesting stories about that that he's had. But usually that's why I said what I said about gold. Because of the possibility of that existing, I try to anticipate it and do offensive spiritual warfare for the beginning. And, I, and like Tom said and, and Mark said and all of us said, just to come against those powers, you cannot do what is your nature to do. You shut up and you're not going to throw this person around and you're not going to touch me and you're not going to hurt them. And uh, usually that will bring them under control. But if they start manifesting themselves violently, I deal with that demon and bring it into subjection. Because this is a clash of authority. This is, this is power encounter. And I'm not going to stand for that type of business. And I'm not going to go through a deliverance session with 15 people holding this person down because there are these demonic powers manifesting. I bring them under control. And once you get them under control, then usually you control the others quite easily. So that's basically the way I approach it. I don't know if the men would like to add any words because that's been my experience. Well, I certainly agree with that. And one that I worked with where it was particularly violent, um, the way that we're able to control that is just to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I subdue you. I forbid you to cause this violence physical reaction and uh, the lady told me afterwards that the same thing was going on but it, uh, the subduing was that she didn't have to live it out and carry it out right. so we do have great deal of authority to weaken and subdue and forbid them to uh, cause those violent manifestations that's far the better than trying to hold them down. And, uh, sometimes it's good to have some big men between you and the door, uh, between them and the door, just because they can bolt so quickly yeah, and they can. get outside or something and causing all kinds of disturbance. I would say, I think there, uh, in some cases, needs to be a temporary physical restraint. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If something explodes on you, if you really touch a demonic nerve and it uh, it reacts yeah. uh, there may be some immediate reaction that you need just for a few moments to subdue and then a phrase i've used that's been effective 
is to say to the spirit, uh, I bind you in all of your physical manifestations. That's good. And the word subdue is also very effective. And uh, that can be done, and it works. Another one I've used is that I, I place the shield of faith, Jesus Christ, between us, and you cannot pass through. And boy, I've seen a great effect to that. Um, for all of you, can a demonized person put a curse upon a Christian which would result in severe Ill sickness? Not if that Christian is uh, protecting himself. Certainly that is ineffective. But I would hate to be a, a careless, carnal, sinful living Christian and have somebody put a curse on me. I really think it, um, it's very important to uh, be walking in a protective, wearing your armor, abiding in Christ, claiming the, uh, the protection of our Lord on a day-by-day -day basis, especially in these days. Amen. The beautiful proverb I'm looking for, I can't find it immediately, but it, it, it says something like this, like, like a sparrow that darts around and can't light anywhere. Great, there we are, 26.2, Proverbs 26.2. And if you want to find it, but basically like a bird that can't find a place to land, uh, so is a curse that comes against the righteous person. And uh, that's tremendously encouraging to me. But I would say a quick word, woe to you. Woe to you if you consciously, knowingly are involved in sin, or if you're indulging the flesh and you move into areas of spiritual warfare. Uh, then I believe these things can alight on us and can afflict us and affect us. And uh, I know because at one point I did not heed a warning uh, from my wife, Terry. And she saw something in me that was not quite right, and I yet moved into the battle. And I suffered under a miserable curse for two to three weeks. And it took one, and I learned my lesson. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and our time has come to an end. Uh, thank you, panel. I, I wish we had more time. I